Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, today's episode's brought to you by Litbreaker. It's an ad network online. You can advertise using Litbreaker. Go to litbreaker.com. It's how you can reach culture vultures, people who like books, art, music, movies, all that stuff. If you want to advertise to those people, go to litbreaker.com and learn how you can advertise on a bunch of great culture sites all at once. Sites like the Nervous Breakdown, the Rumpus, the Paris Review, the list goes on. You can advertise on all of them, the entire network in one shot, or you can pick the sites you want and advertise piecemeal. It's very user-friendly. Check out litbreaker.com. It's an ad network for nerds, for art nerds, for culture vultures. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is yet another podcast. This is a good way to avoid socializing. How's it going? Uh, It's nice to be with you. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. And uh, today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio. Do you need some new earbuds? Do you need uh, some new headphones? Go to tweakedaudio.com, enter the offer code O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L, and get 33% off. So uh, my child is uh, coming soon. Baby is due beginning of August, but my wife is measuring uh, two weeks ahead. It's just, we just turned the corner into June and it's starting to get real. I've got to uh, assemble the crib. We've got to get the nursery figured out. So that's exciting. It's also a little nerve wracking. We're not going to sleep. We're going back in. Can we handle two kids? We, we have one pretty much figured out. Now it's going to be two. It's going to be intense. But we're excited. Colin Wynette is the guest today. He's got a novel out called Haints Stay. It's a Western available from uh, $2 Radio. A psychedelic Western? You know, a, a contemporary Western. Even you know, you know what I mean. It's edgy. Haints Stay. Colin Wynette. Just a moment. Uh, I do have some mail I want to read. A listener named Patrick from uh, Limerick, Ireland writes... 
Uh, hi, Brad. Love the show and the informal approach to the conversation. And as a writer, think that the biographical aspect of the writer's life is where the real gold is, what makes them tick. You cannot truly separate the writing from the life. I know the logistics might be problematic, but I think the podcast would benefit from interviewing writers from outside of the U.S., visiting writers maybe. As a uh, European listener, I've, ha I've had some great insights into the North American mind. I think North American listeners would benefit from listening to writers with perspectives from outside the States. Just an opinion. All the best, Patrick. So <clears throat> thanks for the note, Patrick. I appreciate it, and I agree with you. And uh, I'll take it one step further. I, will, I want to grade myself here because I think Patrick has struck upon something. I think that uh, this podcast, if I do say so myself, has done a very good job on gender. I think I've had more female guests than male guests, and I've actively tried to uh, do that. I want to have women represented on this program. Where I could do better is with international writers, as Patrick suggests, and uh, also with writers of color. I stress about that. I need to have more writers of color on the show. And, you know, frankly, writers of color in the world of uh, literary fiction and nonfiction tend to be uh, underrepresented. But uh, I still, I got to do better outreach. I've got to figure out, uh, you know, where these people are and get them on this program. So when it comes to international writers and when it comes to writers, uh, and when it comes to the show in general, like one of the things I'm trying to shift towards now, this is a recent development is I want to have writers in, in the room with me when I interview them. I'd prefer to do it that way going forward as opposed to having uh, phone calls. You know, phone calls can be fine, but there's something about being in a room with a person. It makes it more interesting for me. And I think it, it you know, it's a, a bit better sound quality and a bit better interview. So when it comes to doing you know, international writers, they're going to have to be in LA, I think. Unless I get somebody, you know, who's just really good and can't make it here or isn't coming through on tour. But that's, that's going to be my approach from now. And I'm going to try to reach out to people as they pass through town on book tour. And I'm also going to try to track down, uh, screenwriters. I want to do that. I've been meaning to do that for a long time, but I want to try to, uh, make this more of a, uh, personal live studio interview situation and hopefully i can accomplish uh you know the, the the task of getting more international writers and more writers of color onto the program doing it that way got another uh letter from a listener named janet she writes hi brad i especially loved the episode with amelia gray episode 361 I think what I loved about it was that you didn't use any of the time exploring her childhood, life path, etc., but just dove into the topics that interested you both as writers, anxiety, balancing home in, or balancing income and art, and all the good stuff. Uh, maybe because you had already done an episode with her so you didn't feel you had to, but it was super interesting and I enjoyed the use of the time. I also enjoy hearing about writers' childhoods and life paths, but if you wanted to do more episodes where you just dive right into these topics and explore them, I'd be into it. Thanks for all you do, Janet. So thank you, Janet. You know, Amelia, like you struck upon it. You know, I had done an episode with Amelia before. And then because she was a book club author, 
you know, for a gut shot, I had her on again. She's also a buddy of mine from here in Los Angeles. So we have a bit more of a shorthand. I know her socially. Uh, we're friends. And so when she came over, I think I was in the back of my mind was thinking, well, let's not do a, you know, I don't want to redo a show I've already done. I don't want to go over ground we've already covered. And it was almost like the, you know, the mics weren't even on. We were just sitting there talking, which is sort of what I'm going for with everybody. But when you know somebody, it makes it a little bit uh, more personal, a little bit easier. And, you know, once again, to kind of uh, grade myself, I feel like there are certain patterns, certain topics of conversation that I wind up talking about uh, over, over and over again. You know, they're like uh, things I'm fascinated with or confused by things that come up in conversation with writers that we share in, you know, that all kind of, you know, all people tend to share in common. And it's always on my mind to try to avoid falling into patterns so that the show stays fresh and that, you know, so one episode seems different from the next. But, you know, like, like, for example, Colin and I, as you're about to hear, uh, my guest today, Colin Wynette, we're going to talk about drugs. I talk about drugs a lot on this program. I'm interested in how drugs influence people's lives creatively and otherwise. It's also, uh, something I'm confused about. I'm always, I'm trying to work out how to feel about it because I've, I've had, uh, you know, I think in some ways very positive experiences with drugs as a younger person, but, uh, have also seen the damage that they can do. And I have a kid, so I'm a parent trying to figure out how to navigate all that. If my daughter is listening right now, don't do drugs. I want you to be pure as the driven snow. I'm not advocating this kind of behavior. <laughs> Makes me worried. I do, you know, I am genuinely concerned. I don't want my children to one day listen to this. Not that they would, but if they do, I wouldn't want them to listen to this and think that I'm advocating some sort of, uh, you know, Dionysian existence. I think some experimentation might be defensible. I think there's a, you know, obviously dangers involved. And I think in particular with uh, hallucinogens, there's value and it's trying to kind of suss it out. You know what I would say too, and maybe I've said this before, but I think it's worth clarifying is that I don't think there are any shortcuts spiritually. And I think sometimes people can fall into that trap with drugs and with, uh, hallucinogens in particular, like, oh, if I do ayahuasca, I'm going to get, you know, it's the same thing as going to therapy for 15 years. Maybe I sort of doubt it. I think the uh, benefits are fleeting, you know, and I think it's uh, also usually the case with drugs that there are uh, diminishing returns with each subsequent, uh, ride. I think you actually have to dig in and do the work. And I think, you know, the way that I dig in and do the work, um, meditation, I think people have different ways of doing it. Therapy, reading books, writing books, all of the above, going to church, whatever it is, you know, I think there has to be reading involved. I think there probably should be some kind of writing involved or art making of art. There seems to be, that seems to be a component or a very beneficial component. And then I think there should be some sort of, uh, some sort of practice, some sort of thing you do, whether it's, 
you know, sitting on, uh, sitting on the floor and being quiet or doing some sort of, uh, charity work. I don't know. That's where I'm at. That's where my head is at with it. And then in your spare time, once a year, you know, as a way to kind of, uh, do a little maintenance, go out into the desert and take peyote. with a sober companion who is also an EMT and who has plenty of water and a satellite phone. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. My guest once again is Colin Wynette. His novel is called Haints Stay, available now from $2 Radio, uh, one of our finest independent presses here in the United States of America. Uh, let's get to it. This is the show. This is Colin Wynette, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, and uh, you're in town on book tour? Yeah. From San Francisco? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. And what brought you to San Francisco? Uh, I actually moved there for a girl. You did? Yeah. The girl who you just met in oh, the okay, I was going to say, yeah. it's the same one that I just met. <laughs> it worked out. Yeah. All right. Good for you. Are you guys married? Yep. yep. Oh, you are. Uh, two-year anniversary in April. Congratulations. Thanks, man. So she was living there. You were living where? In Chicago. All right. Good town? Yeah. I, I mean, I love a lot about Chicago. <laughs> but you were ready to get out? It was ready to get out. Why? The weather was really, really intense. Yeah, um, yeah, We had a particularly bad winter, my first one there, and I don't think I ever got over it. Okay. So. And then how did you meet your wife? Uh, actually, well... Okay. We met in the sort of permanent sense uh, at AWP. Like, that's when it stuck. Full, like, full nerd love. Yeah, full on nerd love. They should put us on the website. I feel like AWP should have some sort of record of couples that have met and then gotten married. It would be a really good move on yeah, their part. I feel know? like it happens. I mean, I feel like there's, I mean, that really is like nerd prom. There's a lot of lonely people going to AWP. <laughs> 
Were you uh, were you in a dark place that year? I mean, like, how did it? How did you guys mm-hmm. meet? No, it was good. It was through a friend. So we went to college together, actually, and we were in a seminar. Um, my wife and I, but we just didn't know each other. There was twelve people in the class. Where 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 did you go to college? Sarah Lawrence. Okay. And then our the girl who I lived with at Sarah Lawrence later became best friends with Andy, and then she they were both coming off for AWP, and so they just decided to stay with me. And then Andy showed up a day before the girl whose name is Jen Gann. Um, okay. Who was a mutual friend, and then we just hit it off that night. And that was it. Okay, so uh, is Andy a writer? Yes, she is. So it's because like, I'm always fascinated by couples that are both writers. Mm-hmm. You guys read each other's stuff. Yeah, it's like an intimate creative partnership too. Yeah, I mean, she so she's a writer in the sense that she writes and she's brilliant, but she doesn't. She's not pursuing a writing career really. She's more her career is in editing. Okay, um, perfect. But you know, she's published some work and she's like out there. And one of the first time I ever like met her, met her officially was uh seeing her read at her senior reading but we just didn't it didn't stick we didn't know each other's names i didn't know who she was i was just like this is a brilliant writer who i can learn something from in this night right and that was it and then she, but she's like also a gifted editor mm. which helps she's brilliant who she's, wouldn't want to live in gifted editor yeah that was true nice. i mean you know it's always challenging because it's like i admire her and respect her so much i want her opinion on every little thing that i ever do and that could be taxing i'm sure if you marry if you're married to someone just a needy like yeah. approval seeking writer yeah <laughs> like this is good right this is good right these but, eggs are good right but you know like there's like that old that like uh you know writerly wisdom i think it was like stephen king who in that book on writing where he was talking about writing for one person mm-hmm. i'm sure he's not the only person who said it <laughs> if i even have that right i'm pretty sure it was him but that makes sense to me like I think you can get overwhelmed if you're sitting there at the keyboard trying, you know, trying to write something that's going to please a million people. It's true, um, but it's sort of uh, okay. Now I'm going to really get it. Com- I'm going to overcomplicate things. But it's <laughs> like when you're trying to write something and you're putting the pressure on yourself to be universal mm-hmm. and to say something with universal appeal or something that's going to resonate with lots of different people. Mm-hmm. The way to do it, or you know, the the, the actual answer is to um, go deeply personal. Right. Like the personal is universal, and then by the same token. Trying to write for a million people um, is a bad way to go. Better to just write for one. If you hit if you hit it with that one, chances are there's like others out there simil- with similar uh, taste. Yeah, it's true. Uh, yeah, you hear that like the personal is universal phrase, oh, right, Mike? Um, but I also think that like if you're trying to write for a lot of different people, then you're basically like half-assing all of what they really want. You know, like, right, right. By service, like you never quite fully satisfy everyone if you're thinking or anyone if you're thinking of everyone so when you write are you thinking of her of andy yeah yeah um like, what i try not think? to what would she think is she gonna <laughs> like this i i honestly try not to because uh she is so like ruthless you know and so it's like if i have her she's head, very nice when oh she's her. wonderful she's yeah. so she's so pleasant but when it comes to something that she like um, really cares about. She takes it like very, very seriously. And so there's no softness. So her voice in my head is always a critical one, you know, um, which is great. And like, there are some of the better work I've written, I think has happened because I, of things that I learned from her and like, you know, things that she said to me. Well, and good editors too. Like I always call, like I always compare it to that game Jenga. Yeah. Like you spend all this time on a, on a piece of writing and it's like assembling this Jenga tower and then you give it to an editor and they just start pulling out blocks and you're like, no. And then you know, sometimes it falls, you have to reassemble it, you go through the whole process, you're pissed off at them uh, and very frustrated with them as it's happening. But then if it's a good editor 
And, you know, if you go the distance with a piece of writing and it gets to where you want it to go and it gets to where that person thinks it should be, mm-hmm. you tend to really be grateful to them for pushing you. It's really true. You yeah. Know? You need, like, I, I hate to be pushed, but I love it at the same time. Yeah. I mean, I see, I take it in, like, waves, you know? It's like yeah. the first draft, I'm like, I just need someone to say that I'm not wasting my life. Right. And then, <laughs> and then we can talk about it in the second draft. How, sh- little- how shitty are your first drafts? Um, it depends. I mean, typically, so I'm so wildly inconsistent that like when it's a shitty draft, it's usually so bad. It's not worth revisiting. Um, so it was like, I mean, I would say maybe 50, 50, uh, maybe more 60, 40 in terms of like just writing pure garbage. Cause sort of my like approach is just to like make myself write a lot. And so as a result of that, you write when you don't really feel like it and you write just kind of like chasing down things that there's no that you're just momentarily interested in. And so you write a lot of like stupid shit. So even on days where you just feel like shit and you have nothing in the tank, you just, you do it anyway. You yeah. Do, you do word count? Yeah. Yeah. You do. Mm-hmm. How many a day? A thousand. A thousand. Mm-hmm. What time you write? It depends. Um, so I've had this full-time job for the first time in my life this last year. And uh, that really fucked up my schedule <laughs> nothing will fuck up a writing life like a full-time job yeah yeah and when it's a full-time writing job so it's just like writing from like eight to five oh, and then see. trying to get up and write okay because yeah. i feel that's a that's an interesting thing because i feel like you know you have if you have a full-time job and it's something that uses a totally different set of uh, mental muscles or it's something that's totally mindless mm-hmm. so you can kind of save yourself for writing yeah uh, that's one thing but if you have a job there where you're reading and writing and you're deep into words all day long mm-hmm. How do you muster the energy to do your own stuff? You must get up early. It, it totally depends on the day. So that, it used to be mornings. Every morning up, um, you know, two hours before I had to be anywhere and just writing. It was a different time every day. Um, you and get then a thousand words in two hours? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, shit. You're but fast. that's the thing is like it's, you know, 40, 50 percent of the time it's garbage. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, just keeping moving. Like, I mean, all the stuff that I write is just like has a sort of momentum to it you know yeah um that like you could probably read it and be like oh he wrote that in an hour <laughs> but that's you know i mean it, but you get stuff done and, and uh we get words on the page some of it is salvageable every once in a while you probably have a great day where it's actually really good yeah yeah and then um it, you also feel better i find it like if you get your shit done in the morning mm-hmm. and you have the rest of the day to just sort of continue on with whatever else you need to do but you know you got your writing done yeah there's a certain anxiety that's lifted oh my god it's the best feeling in the world so yeah. like running and writing are the two things that if i can get them done before 10 then those are my best days okay always. so this is really i've talked to four like almost 400 writers this is a type yeah. It's, it's like the running writer. Really? Yeah. It's like, I, I mean, pe- there are people who jog mm-hmm. and write, and it's like a thing, and it's a system. Yeah. Uh, who else does that? I mean, I'm, I mean, other than like Murakami. More like Murakami, but uh, Blake Butler, uh-huh. uh, he comes to mind. He, you know, he's one of the first people I ever had on this show, and he's a huge runner. Yeah, I remember um, hearing or reading something he wrote years ago about how every book that he reads is uh, on the stationary bike, Blake. Uh, this was years ago. This was like two or three years ago. And so then I started doing that and I was like, I'm not, reti- I'm not like, I can now see sort of where his aesthetic comes from because like reading on an exercise bike just made it like, br- it broke apart the language and the story so much. You right, know? Yeah. right, right. You're yeah. getting it in pieces. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's like, it's like, a, I think it's like, um, it's a mood regulator, the mm-hmm. exercise, it's an energy regulator. I mean, it's obviously healthy. You're keeping your body healthy so your mind is sharper or whatever, but uh, it's also stress relieving. Yeah. I mean, I'm the same way. I, I have to move. I don't understand people who can live 
like inert lives and still be like mentally sharp and productive. Like I would be a disaster. Yeah. Not to mention like a moody bastard. That's the thing. Um, you know, so like I have to have like the way that I'm wired physically, like I have to have that some sort of physical release. Otherwise, you know, it just all goes upstairs and it's bad. Mm -hmm. So are you a runner? No, I can't. I can, my body is not made to run. So, mm -hmm. I, but I hike a ton. Uh, I go to the gym. I do yoga. Like I do a lot of shit. Mm -hmm. Um, like I, I, I need a lot of maintenance. Yeah. It's <laughs> the mood thing is really, uh, it's so palpable. You know, it's just like if I go a day or two without running, then I'm just like really a depressed, like miserable person. And, right. and I never it's I never think, oh, it's because I haven't gone running until it's basically Andy will just be like, have you been running recently? Because you seem like kind of off. You seem right. like you've been watching a lot of The Sopranos and just like <laughs> wallowing in your own misery. And I'm like, oh, I should probably go. For well, that. see, and but that, that makes me think like so many people who are, you know, mildly depressed. You know, I know there are people who are like seriously chemically in mm -hmm. need of some sort of uh you know, uh, medication. But mm -hmm. I think a lot of people who might be on those medications, like just go, just run a couple miles every day. You might be able to regulate without it. Yeah. Not true. that I'm a doctor but <laughs> it works for me because I think like if I didn't do it, that's probably what I would be doing. I'd right. be on pills. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I didn't have running coffee, alcohol and like social <laughs> groups, then like I would need something else really severe. Well, at least you, you mean, at least, you know, yeah. <laughs> Did you do a lot of drugs when you were younger? Not a lot. I mean, like I was, Actually, I was really sober until I was like 18, um, maybe 17. I'm trying to remember when. Hey, I was a senior in high school. And then we started drinking, but it was like drinking like Smirnoffs and then smoking pot. And Wait, like, what do you mean like this? Like a single Smirnoff? Like a Smirnoff ice? Like a Smirnoff thing? ice, yeah. 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 Um, and that was like all we could take. And then, uh, but then college hit and it became a lot, it got a lot more serious. Like pot? Pot, but pot sort of lost its effect on me, or not it lost its favorable effect. It still affects me, but I don't like anything that it does to me. Yeah, I used me to really too. like it. Me, um, too. me too. Yeah. So you with age, even now. Yeah. What's that about? I, I, I regret it. Cause I think it's the least harmful. That's the thing. And I wish like I could unwind like every once in a while and just like smoke pop, but it's not fun for me. I turn stupid and subverbal. Yeah. I turn stupid, subverbal and super self-conscious. Like I just like attack myself. I yeah. sit there just being quiet and like making dumb sounds and like, yeah. hating myself and, like, no, and i'm like talking to my wife i'm like carrie like i'm like uh, like are you annoyed because she doesn't smoke my, my wife has never even smoked pot oh really she doesn't she's terrified of any kind of smoke going into mm -hmm. her body like probably smart yeah yeah um but i never just, smoked a cigarette you never have <laughs> oh i did that I'm, like, I'm one of those geniuses but uh <laughs> yeah no i just uh i just find myself being like am i annoying because like the thing about it um with pot, and I don't feel this way with alcohol, is that I feel like to a certain degree, especially if you're with somebody who's not stoned, is that unless you're able to be like full capacity social and full capacity verbal, it's almost like selfish time. Yeah. Like I can't be with somebody in a normal social way when I'm stoned. I feel like I'm too interior. Mm -hmm. And then I feel like, oh, I'm kind of being a dick. Yeah. You know, I'm off in my own land. Yeah, and then the conversation keeps turning to the fact that you're stoned yeah. and, like, yeah. the people around you are not stoned. Well, yeah. and okay, and then this is the thing. Like, this is where I'm going with this regarding, yeah. like, I'm trying to bring it uh, into some sort of shape with regard to your running and uh -huh. with regard to kind of the way we regulate ourselves. Like, I have a theory, and it's just a theory because, you know, all, all I'm going by is, like, life experience, mm -hmm. um, that we are being surveilled right now by an airplane. <laughs> uh, I have a theory that... Uh, not very subtly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, I have a theory that uh, I have a theory that people who have uh, done drugs or have you know you know not gone off the deep end but had like a pretty intense uh, college experience or a few years or young adulthood where they were drinking a lot or smoking a lot of pot or doing things to even some degree of excess wind up becoming more conscious 
of what they put into their body and how they treat themselves, um, like physiologically, neurochemically, etc. Like you, you get more into like how you regulate yourself as a result of having to deal with hangovers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like that might be, <laughs> am I reaching? Like that's the best possible outcome. Like you wind up going, oh, this makes me feel like shit, which probably should have been obvious from the start. Mm-hmm. And then you wind up having to like solve that. And then as like, as an extension of that, you wind up going, oh, this makes me feel better. This makes me feel better. And you get more into health. Am, am I onto something or am I crazy? I th- that's a, that's a way of thinking about it that I had never, I haven't had. Um, yeah. so this is a new thought for me. So thanks for sharing that. Um, <laughs> I always think that, like, I, my mind always goes to, at least for me and people who I, like, sort of identify with in certain ways, that, like, there's a, a kind of, not, like, an addictive quality, but, like, maybe an obsessive closer. Like, I wouldn't, like, um, diagnose myself as obsessive, but sort of all the things that I have done and do, I do them, like, sort of as hard and as often and as much. There's, like, very little regulation. Right. And uh, that got to a point where I started noticing like how regulating things can have effects. And so then I became kind of obsessive about like regulation on things. Yeah. Um, and so now I think I'm somewhere in like a, a healthier middle place, uh, like bound to slip into one or the other at some point. Um, but so that, that was, it felt like the same kind of like boundless energy, just refocused, you know? Right. Um, yeah. So I think it's, maybe it's just, it's along the lines of what you were saying. I think so. I yeah. mean, I think like hopefully as you get older, you get a little smarter, your body can't yeah. do the same things and, and you're just not as interested. I mean, mm-hmm. I think we, pro- like most people cycle through this stuff and you just get onto other stages of life mm-hmm. and other stages of life don't tend to accommodate that sort of stuff as well. Well, you get other stages of life or other stages of drug use. Right. You know? like, either one, one <laughs> or the go other. down either route. Um, yeah. So where are you from originally? You went to Sarah Lawrence. Are you from back east? No, I'm from Texas actually. Okay. Uh, and then when I picked a college, I was just like a coast somewhere that's not Texas. Where in Texas? Denton. Okay. The Dallas? Yeah, it's like north of Dallas. By Dallas about, adjacent. About 45 minutes, yeah. I have a friend who had some relatives in Denton. Oh, really? Yeah, in college. But uh, did you enjoy it? Yeah, yeah. Denton's great. I mean, it's... I was really ready to get out of there. Um, but at another point in my life, I could have spent my whole life there. Yeah. What point was that? Um, I would say around 16, I was in a band. And like it's a really good music town. And the band was doing all right. And... That was just, I was just like, we could do this forever. Like, this could be my life. And then when the idea, when I started realizing that going to college didn't mean going to a giant Texas university, it was like I could find a small school and like really focus on things uh, that interested me and like not worry about all the other stuff. Um, then I got really excited about leaving and I got really excited about being as far away and having as different an experience as possible. What kind of band were you in? I was in, it was like, uh, it, so I was in two bands. One was like a screamo punk band and one was like uh, was like screaming emo yeah okay yeah. uh started out very emo and then we got interested in screaming so okay. then it became screamo <laughs> when, uh, <laughs> when the emo just becomes too uh what too much to take it's just not enough yeah you know <laughs> enough, you need more yeah uh and then i was in sort of like a weird gothy metally band too okay yeah that's but, a, that, that's a good range yeah yeah it was fun i mean i was like both of them were really fun to do and really like fun music to play. I was a drummer, so it was like fun music to play as a drummer. Um, but my personality never really like sunk into either. So I would be playing like metal music, but like wearing like bright yellow shirt and like a big floppy hat or something. And like, just like, 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, but, and then uh, what about like the lyrics? Like you're a writer, so you weren't you weren't writing the lyrics for the band or anything? No, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it because we I couldn't sing, and so we had two people who were singers in both bands, and it was like they took it pretty seriously, like what they sang. I I, um, I, I kind of understand that if you're going to be the singer, you got to really feel what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. It's got to be sort of yours, and I'm always fascinated because some. Uh, lead singers, you know, they are singing other people's words, mm-hmm. but I guess it just it registers. Yeah, I mean, it, I guess it comes down to like how good of a performer can you be? Yeah, you know? like, and not that like somebody who's singing their own words like is not as good of a performer who someone can as someone who can own the words that someone else wrote. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, but just like if you can embody that and like act, you know, basically and still sing, then like that's pretty impressive. Yeah, no, there's like, I mean, there's a theatricality to it. Yeah. Even when it's your own stuff, you know, if you are, are in a band for long enough and you're doing enough live shows, like your job every night is to play that song like it's the first time you ever heard, like that you're totally into it. Right, right. And you're right. And be you so sick of it. it. Yeah. I'd be so sick of it. But I mean, yeah, I, you know. I'm playing tiny violins for those people. <laughs> it's not such a bad fate. <laughs> it's true. Uh, so do you guys tour? Yeah. Um, never outside of Texas, but we did like, um, there's this thing called Buzzfeed. No, sorry. Not Buzzfeed. What the fuck? Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's this thing called Buzzfeed. It's a very popular website. Yeah, no, um, it's, it's great. It has nothing to do with my band, yeah. but I just wanted to bring it up. What are they, what are they called now? I can't even remember. It's like a magazine? It actually might have been called BuzzFeed. All right. I never thought about it. But it's like a Denton, it's like a Dallas Fort Worth um, sponsorship thing. And they like. They should sue. I, it can't be called BuzzFeed. It's Buzz something. Maybe it is called. Well, I'll look at I'll look yeah, at yeah, it. Yeah, we'll yeah. settle it. Um, that their whole thing is they have a battle of the bands and they hook up like an up and coming band, whoever wins the battle of the bands, uh, with some like sort of touring established band. Right. And so we won that. And then we went on tour with this band called Isley who just got off tour with Coldplay. So we were so excited about that. We were like, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow will be at one of our shows. Was she? No, no. Um, far from it, (laughs) but we got to play some cool venues like trees and, uh, Granada theater and those like places in Dallas and Fort Worth where we would just go see bands. So that felt good. That's awesome, man. That's fun. Yeah. You know, just like as a, as a life experience, it's one of those things I wish I would have done, like learn an instrument, like know what it's like to play music. Like that seems like such a healthy human activity. Mm -hmm. It's got to make you feel good. Like, does it make you feel good? Uh, can you get the same feeling writing fiction? that you got playing drums in a rock band totally different feeling but similar like outlet of energy you know it's like you come out of it feeling like it's just like running you know yeah you do this thing you can get lock into it see i'm imagining playing music's way better than running than everything oh yeah well it it is when it works but it's like okay so now i go and just play drums in like a rehearsal studio in san francisco like alone and some days it's you know really satisfying and other days it's just like getting through the thing and i feel like that way with band practice or like playing shows it was like some days it was the worst feeling in the world because you nothing was clicking just mechanical no one there yeah like you know it's just like even when you were playing your instrument well like the band just wasn't gelling and like the feeling wasn't there and that's a weird thing um 
to think about how much music we listen to and how like how much of it somehow manages to like be successful when there's like the smallest thing is off and uh it doesn't the feeling well, doesn't I, I, get I, in you yeah i was thinking about this recently like these people who are in these bands that play stadiums you know or or like you know even theaters that are holding like you know three and five thousand people but when you have mm-hmm. enough people in there to really uh, to really be able to gauge like the collective human energy mm-hmm. in the room, I mean, I guess you can do it even in smaller venues. But I'm, th- I'm thinking like it's a rare job and it's a rare experience for a person to to spend your life constantly on stage in front of like twenty thousand people at a time. Yeah, like uh, what do you learn about? Because like, is it are the mechanics of the situation the same? There ha- it has to be. Like some nights the show feels great, some nights the show feels like shit. Yeah, I mean, or is the is the human energy in the room? If you're this big popular band, is it so electric every night that it carries you? This is interesting because so, I so I just saw the Mountain Goats in San Francisco, and we saw the first night they were in town, and it was an incredible show. And like everybody in the the Fillmore, the sold out Fillmore, was just like completely wrapped, you know, and like no, silent during silent moments on stage. Like he would be, you know, tuning or like setting up a piano and everyone was just like staring and like so ready and we all felt it and, you know, people would be singing along, but no one was being like a crazy dick. And then I read a review of the next night and apparently like the whole, the Fillmore has this like second story, which is a bar and you can sit at tables. And apparently that whole section was just talking and yelling the whole time. So whereas the first night we were there, John Darnielle kept being like, oh, my God, you guys are such an incredible audience. This is such a wonderful show. And the next night he had to keep being like, would you shut the fuck up? Like, yeah. Wow. Yeah. But see, what is it? I don't know. That's because the thing. like even when it's not like you know, uh, you know, when it's not, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? When people aren't being like overtly rude. Mm-hmm. Just some nights it's just off in the in the stadium or off in yeah. the theater or whatever. And like, and, and you, have, you like you remember like when you were going out in, in uh, college or even now when mm-hmm. you go out, you go out to some nights on a Saturday night. You go to the show and like you just feel it in the room. Like yeah. this is a good Saturday night. Yeah, the energy's good in the room. That's not fake, is it? No, is that in my is that like my imagination? I mean, I think it's fake in that it's not fake, but it's it's based on sort of like artificialities where it's like there's a lot of things going. There's a lot of things there to sort of generate that feeling of connectedness and like that kind of solid feeling at a show. Um, but when, there's I don't think anybody has complete control over it. You know, Mercury's in retrograde. Yeah, that shit. I that's like, what's going on. I see it on Twitter. <laughs> Everyone's it's I, mean, I don't believe in it. I mean, maybe, you know, who knows? What do I know? But I feel like uh I feel like it's a little bit ridiculous, but it's also fun <laughs> to have like a catch-all. Like if shit is going wrong in your life, you can just blame Mercury. I just, like when has Mer- Mercury not been in retrograde? It's always like, in every retrograde. time I'm online, yeah. people are like, "Well, I had a bad day because Mercury's <laughs> in retrograde." And it's like, <laughs> is this like a ten-year process? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and I think like sometimes I've you know I've talked to writers who have written books and like these mad bursts of creative you know creative energy, which is maybe something similar you know it's like a similar issue where sometimes you just catch this wave mm-hmm. um i think we do go through fallow periods and we go through periods where we're like super active creatively and are like we're just alive yeah and then you know the book comes out of you or an album comes out of you or whatever it is and then you know that energy is sort of spent and you need to recharge and that can be a little bit of a uh disheartening feeling because you're kind of in the wilderness or you feel sluggish and you know you were kind of riding that high yeah um has it ever been the case for you where you've written a book like a long form project Mm -hmm. in in like a pretty quick burst yeah so basically all the books that i've written have been pretty quick um we're doing a thousand words a day yeah well (laughs) you know um but with a lot of garbage but it was like the 
there's one book, this is my third book called Fondly, and it's two novellas. And one of the novellas is called Gainesville. And that one, I wrote like 80% of it in a, over a three day period, like in Gainesville, Texas. And just like, I had nothing else to do. So I was just like writing all day and like up as late as I could stay up at night. And I was listening to this one song, this like Which Fleetwood was? Mac song okay. um, called Honey High. All right. Um, off of Tusk, I think. And, um, it just on repeat because it was originally I had like a playlist of music. And then that one, for whatever reason, like was present enough to like sort of guide my mood without like demanding too much, you know, mental attention. No, I totally get it. And, um, so I stuck with that for that whole period. And then whenever I had to go back and edit or revise or like change something in the book, I just put that on like loops. So I could try and get back to that. Like it's a, t- it's a tonal thing. Yeah. It's completely, you're not getting narrative, but you're getting mm-hmm. tone and mood mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. the muse. Cause I feel that same way. Like there can be like, I usually have like an album or two or sometimes just like a song and it just hooks you in, whether it's for a chapter or whether it's for an entire, you know, section or for the whole thing, but you find that music and it can be helpful. What was the most recent one that was helping you? Uh, You know, it's weird. It was just this biosphere album. It's like ambient music. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was just the mood, Mm -hmm. you know? And it also, um, cause sometimes I find that music with lyrics can pull me out. Yeah. I'll, I'll start you know, it's like, it's too, there's too many words. I need (laughs) something that's just ambient, but, uh, you know, and then I was tweeting about this the other day, but uh, I remember back at like the early 2000s, I was working on my novel, Attention Deficit Disorder, and um, it was early. I did like multiple drafts of it, and they were really shitty, and uh, just struggling with it and taking myself really seriously, and then went to see a, a Flaming Lips show, uh, and it was like just absurd. You know, everyone's like in costumes, and there's balloons and glitter, and like... It was just goofy, mm-hmm. but it was exactly what I needed because mm-hmm. I was like, oh, like people aren't taking themselves so seriously. Like I was just in one of those funks right? and it snapped me out of it. Um, so music was good for me there. Oh, nice. That, that can be helpful. Yeah. Sometimes just the energy, like a getting out of your hovel and like going to see music, um, somebody play music in, in person. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great energy transfer as we were talking about earlier. Like it's mm-hmm. really healthy. I think Yeah, I need to do more of it. Yeah, but it's such a drag sometimes yeah. to try and go see shows. Why is that? Um, yeah, it's just like court. It's I think because I've gone to so many shows and such a huge percentage of them did not hit uh-huh. that like now when I imagine going to a show and I'm like ah it's gonna be hot I'll be like standing <laughs> in this room right. and pay like fucking thirty dollars or whatever yeah. and like just stand there drinking a seven dollar beer and like well plus you're you were in a band stuff. so you you're probably more tuned into when it's gonna hit or when it's not. I always just think I want to be playing it, you know, uh-huh. which is terrible because I don't want to take away from what the what the mu- music that I'm seeing. But I always have this part of me that's like, maybe they'll like ask for a drummer to come up and help. <laughs> and like, <laughs> we need a drummer. It's like we need a medic. Dude, you know, this happened. I saw Green Day when I was like 15, and I was just starting to finally like feel like a drummer. And they asked. They were like, I was in like the pit in front of the stage, and they were like, Does anybody here plays drums? And like, I was like, me. And this guy next to me was like, me. And they pulled him up and he fucking played drums with Green Day. No way. It was crazy. That was your moment. That was my dream. Fuck. Destroyed. Damn. That's okay. when I gave up. I threw the sticks away. Well, see, but now what I'm thinking, because like, I feel like when you go to shows, you need to smoke more pot because mm. pot, I feel like, you know, I don't know if this is the case for you, but it totally diminishes my critical faculties. And I'm just like, it's awesome. <laughs> Other drugs even more so. Yeah. But like, that's one of the most ingenious business decisions or business arrangements ever is the mixing of like drugs in the audience with music in the band. Like the band doesn't even have to be great if the audience is high enough. It's true. And like, they'll feel like they had this epic adventure, (laughs) 
even though the band was like out of tune. I have experience with this. <laughs> then you like listen to playback afterwards on some sort of bootleg, and you're like, oh my god, like, Wait, that was what, fucking horrible. What was this experience? Oh, just like old Grateful Dead shows or uh, whatever when okay. I was a kid. You know, like thinking like, oh my god, like that was epic. And then you, you know, a few years later, like you hear the tape, and you're like, yeah, I was an idiot. Like, <laughs> They were horrible. <laughs> I've heard them do some pretty incredible stuff, but yeah, yeah it's like, no, no, I'm a huge yeah. fan. But I mean, yeah. like some of those late shows were wobbly, <laughs> to say the least. Like they're they can't like I was I had the distinction of being at the first Grateful Dead show where they actually had to use teleprompters to remember the words to their own songs. Wow! So could you see the teleprompter? Yeah, oh I had sh- because I had shitty seats like behind the stage or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it was like uh, I was like, oh my god! Like they're just reading the lyrics. Like <laughs> it got that bad. Um, but you know, I think. Uh, I was just watching uh, on Netflix the uh, Bob Weir documentary right. the other night. Mm-hmm. I appreciate them. I appreciate them. My wife, we, we've had like a, a decade-long argument about this because she can't stand The Grateful Dead. But uh, I, think they're, I think they're an awesome band. Yeah. Like, even though they weren't great all the time, like what they stood for, the whole adventure of it, mm-hmm. like that's pretty awesome to me. Uh, yeah. And the way they built, like this is the thing, is that so much of the time we hear about People complain about artists being in it for the wrong reasons or the commercialization of music or like, oh, my God, they're doing Pepsi commercials or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Like they built this entire thing from the ground up. Like there's an iconography, all audience generated. There's this community. I mean, like it is it predates the Internet era for sure mm-hmm. in like a really significant way. And uh, it's hard to do. And they did it all on their own terms. And so, like, whether or not you like the sound of the music or not, like, I guess it, as business people, <laughs> yeah, I mean, really. The Grateful and Dead were fine businessmen. They were. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an true, irony. It's, it's yeah. an irony, you know. So, anyway. I, and, and I just find the history of it fascinating because, you know, it really was the first time that you had the collision of, like, rock and roll music and um, hallucinogens in in you know, uh, with large groups of people. I yeah. think it was at least. Well, certainly for such a sustained period of time, yeah. you know, like I feel like there were certain bands that were really like in that, but it lasted for a year. It was like, we all got like, really wasted and listened to this. And <laughs> right. then we, most of us died and most of us <laughs> chose life, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, in that weird documentary, he did a lot of acid. You can give me yeah. a lot. Uh, so I just did this Q and a at skylight. And the first question that the, interviewer who was carolina vatslaviak yeah, asked yeah, yeah. was uh have you ever taken acid which was like a brilliant icebreaker for because then, then all of a sudden we we're talking about acid and we we're talking about like our feelings around drugs and like we just both became much more open uh-huh. so now i want to know how if you've taken acid and how much acid a lot yeah yeah i mean uh, i mean i think it was a lot i did it uh i did it oh, shit i mean the thing about it is that my drug experience uh or my drug experimentation phase of life was really short but I got a lot in. When was this? This was like when I was 18, 19 years old. And like the way that I always explain it is that, you know, I, I'm of the just say no generation. I'm mm-hmm. a little bit older than you, but mm-hmm. it was like the Nancy Reagan, just say no. That's what the adults were feeding me. And it was this really blanket assertion, like all drugs, bad, yeah. all drugs, the same. And it was false information. Yeah. And I was a kid who really listened to his elders. Like hmm. I took them seriously. Mm-hmm. Like, and, you know, I, like I love my parents. I still, you know, my parents and I get along great. And, you know, they just, they grew up in the South. They had no, like they grew up in the South and came of age in the sixties, but had no cultural connection to any of that. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was sort of coastal. And then it, you know, then the culture got commodified and spread elsewhere, you know, but unless you were really hip, I think most of it was like Berkeley, New York, you yeah. know, the, and, and that kind of stuff And the South was sort of, uh, I'm, I mean, I'm sure there were pockets of counterculture, but that just missed my folks. So, <laughs> you know, I, I got all that and then you start smoking pot and you go, Oh wait, like this is, 
this is fine. Yeah. I'm just like eating cereal and it's fine. And then, mm-hmm. you know, or like, it's not a hundred percent fine, but it's, it's fine. It's not what I was told. Exactly. <laughs> it's not the nightmare. I was exactly. Told. And then yeah. it's like, Oh, and so let me try this other stuff. And then it's like, mm-hmm. wow, this is, and then, you know, I started taking, uh, you know, hallucinogens and had some really incredible experiences, mm-hmm. some scary experiences, never had like a really bad trip where I just looped and like, you know, was rocking in a corner or anything. Right. I always was able to keep like one toe in reality. Nice. Um, but it was like 18, 19, and then I was sort of done. And I think it was because, you know, for me, uh, as opposed to some people I was with, and there were other friends of mine who I think were on a kind of a similar journey. But like for me, it was really about trying to figure out what's going on here. Yeah. And like having some sort of spiritual component to it as opposed to just like, let's get fucked up and, and have a party. Yeah. And so I, I just, I don't know. I moved through it quickly. And, and I was also like, man, I feel like shit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> It really does a yeah. number on you. Well, yeah, and, you know, especially with like when you start to get into like I never did um, cocaine. I, I drew the line there, but like MDMA um, and then mushrooms and pot. That was it. Um, hmm. What What do you think drew that line for you? Like, what's the distinction between cocaine and MDMA? Well, I mean, I know they're entirely different drugs, but like. I, I guess the thing that, that, that what I would always say is I never liked, I love how you're interviewing me, now, <laughs> but it's fine. It's fine. Cause I, it. yeah. Um, I always think that like, I always found that people went into bathrooms and hid when they did cocaine Yeah, and it always bothered me. And I always loved people who would do cocaine in the middle of the party. Mm-hmm. It's like, why are you hiding? Mm-hmm. It just, it generated that weird sketchy behavior in people and they wanted more and they didn't want to share it. it was right. Like little kids with, you know, it was a bad energy. Yeah. And, uh, I, and I also just in my head, I was like, you know, I'm not. For whatever reason, I was like, I'm not going to be a guy who does cocaine. Yeah. Um, that's not what I'm about. Yeah. And I didn't like what I saw. And I just, I don't know. It was instincts more than anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about you? Well, I guess I asked because I was like, yeah, I mean, I all of the sort of drugs that you described, I've tried. And then for the longest time, I was like, I'm not a cocaine guy and I'm just not going to do it. And then somewhat recently, I just tried it. I yeah. was like, I'm not particularly interested in it, but like I'm with someone who I really like care about and he like loves cocaine. Like I'll just give this a try. Yeah, and it was fine. Like you know, you just, I just talked for like four hours at a rapid pace. I did not talk really fast. I see. I thought that like I was like, kind of the whole night. I was just like, this drug is having no effect on me. Like I must not take it enough. I don't know what's going on. But then I looked back on everything I had done, yeah. and it was like I had run a circle around a group of people who were dancing and duct tape them all together and then like run a bunch of circles around. We were like in this giant bar at the Mission Creek Music Festival and uh-huh. I was like running up and down the tables and then like I wound up on like some freshman like undergraduate's dorm porch and like singing Weezer songs with like 30 <laughs> freshmen like at the top of my lungs. Yeah. Uh, and then the next morning I was just like, oh yeah, I guess... I guess I was on a drug. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a different night. Yeah. It was a really different night. So, okay. So, uh, you have kids? No. Are you gonna? Don't know. Not sure. Talking it through. See, I have a kid and it's like, you know, I, this is something that I think any parent, ha- you know, you have to contend with at some point, <laughs> you know, like, what am I going to tell my daughter? Mm-hmm. She's going to listen to these potentially one day. Yeah. I just, I, I want to be honest. I think I want to give like as much honest information as I can. Mm-hmm. I think you have to maybe like read your kid and understand who they are and where they are in their life. Yeah. Like to, to determine when you should dole out that information. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I think like the honesty is the best policy. Yeah. Try to explain what the different drugs are, what their impacts are. But like, um, I guess I worry a little bit, you know, because, well, maybe I shouldn't, I, I, I don't know. I just, you don't want your kid getting hurt or doing something, um, stupid that they feel 
uh, I don't know. I don't That's want the nightmare. Like, it's the I don't want her to feel like I sanction bad behavior. It's a, it's a right. slippery slope. If you're like, well, I did it, but I don't want you to do it, then that has its own kind of hypocrisy. And then mm-hmm. if you're like, I did it, and I had some positive experiences and some scary experiences, and then you know, God forbid, she would go off and do it, and something were to happen. It's like, what yeah. do you tell your kid? It's a tough call. It's uh, yeah, it's that thing where. I guess I have two points. One, that you, I, I feel like, I mean, and I'm not a parent, so you tell me, like, I'm just yeah, kind of projecting no. entirely. I'm all ears. But I always want, like, I imagine, when I imagine raising a kid, I imagine part of it being about communicating to them that, like, I've, like, I've had to sort of grow up and respond to the same things that they're growing up and responding to. Granted, they have an entirely different life, and life will be very different at that time. Yeah. But in the sense of just, like, stepping into the world, not knowing exactly what to do, and having all this stuff coming at you, and trying to sort through, like, what you're going to engage with, what you're not going to engage with, be it drugs, be it, like, whatever. Yeah. Um, and so, like, just getting a sort of baseline, and through, I think this is accomplished through honesty, of just being like, I'm still figuring things out, here's what I've done, here's what I've learned. Um, I think it's important for you to be informed and like, I can help inform you. Right. Um, all that. But then you like, there's this scene in boyhood, which we don't necessarily have to talk about. Cause I didn't really I love, love the that movie. movie. Oh, okay. You loved it. Yeah. I like, I didn't, I didn't totally love it. But, I fucking loved it. Um, all right. We'll loop back around, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the scene when they're like, the kids are like, they've snuck out and they're just like hanging out with friends and then like in a, like a construction site house yeah, and they're yeah. like throwing saw blades into the wall. Uh-huh. And there's, it's like a very tense scene because there's a moment where there's a kid like standing in front of a saw blade stuck in a wall. I don't remember even what they do. They're like pushing each other or something. And like the movie doesn't go there. Like nothing bad happens. It's a fine scene. But it just reminded me, I was like, oh yeah, throughout my whole life, I've been making decisions that could really easily have killed me me too you know like yes even like not even drugs just like jumping off a thing or like yep. fucking around on a truck yep. and like so close to death i was always. thinking about this yesterday yeah. because i was thinking about new orleans and mardi gras i don't know what got me i got it on my i think i was listening to music and i you know it was like from that uh you know from that world and i was like god like i remember my it wasn't even me i remember my friends from college our freshman year drove down to new orleans and it was like Five dudes packed into a Jeep, drinking heavily. Yeah. Driving. Yeah. I mean, wasted. And Colorado to Louisiana is a long drive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it wasn't like a, you know, it wasn't like a four-hour jaunt. It was like mm-hmm. the overnight, and it was just bananas. Jesus. But, like, made it back. And I remember when they got, I remember the reason it sticks with me is I remember when they got back, they literally, like, pulled up, parked, walked in, and they were all just, like, shit-faced. And it was just a reckless time. Yeah. You know, that 18-year-old, you're out, let out of your cage, you're on your own, <laughs> you're testing your boundaries, you know, and um, it's, uh, you know, they're lucky to, to have made it through. Yeah. Or not, or they're lucky they didn't hurt somebody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's like a million of those, yeah. you know, in my own, not, I mean, maybe nothing quite as bad for me in terms of like, you know, I, I was always pretty careful about not drinking and driving or doing yeah. that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. just like, like you say, a million little things where you're like, it could have gone wrong. Yeah. And it didn't. And whether you get hurt or you get arrested or you get, you know, into some kind of trouble and, uh, it's just luck. Yeah. And, and some people don't make it out. Yeah. You know, like, did you ever have friends who went like too far? Did you ever lose anybody in, along the way? Yeah. I mean, I've had friends who died like just like tubing, you know, and not because they like made a bad choice because they were just like tubing down a river that hundreds of other people were tubing down and like stood up and then slipped because of the current and it killed them. No shit. Yeah, yeah. What was it? When was this? This was, um, let's see. It was in between my sophomore and junior year of college, so it would have been like 2005. Was it, was it your, your good buddy? 
he was my like we grew up together we went to grade school together and he was very we were very close in grade school and then in middle school it became one of these like weird social group things where yeah. we sort of pitted ourselves against one another um and then we like kind of reconciled but we're never like as close and so that we this you know it's like we also went to high school together and we were like you know saying hi hi in the halls kind of thing yeah um and then he just died fuck yeah and there was another friend of mine uh who i was closer with but still not like best buds but you know we saw each other every week kind of thing um and he died but i actually don't even remember how he died i was having a conversation in, uh about this with my friend jen where it's just like i feel like enough people have died like sort of around me that it's starting to feel like I'm sorry to bring up the Sopranos twice in a row uh but just it's starting to feel like that show where someone is always dying be it's like they're killing it or like it's their dear friend or it's just someone in the background just dying just, I mean if you reason. live long enough eventually it gets really intense yeah you know oh, you get to be Jesus. into your 80s and 90s or whatever and just like everyone's dying yeah and then you get if, to, if you if you know if you're lucky enough to be a centenarian, then like everyone does. <laughs> basically, every even the people, even your children. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um, crazy. I mean, I think about those people, like uh, you know, the really long lived people. Obviously, they're like genetically blessed, mm-hmm. um, but they also you, you have to. It seems like you would also have to have a way of understanding loss and moving through life, um, you know, in the wake of grief. Yeah. with a different kind of strength or a different kind of thought process. Like how could you possibly live through all that loss and not be dragged down by it? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like There's, I was just, and this is going to make me sound like a total creep, but I was just like overhearing someone's conversation in a bar. Yeah. Uh, we were there for the group of people and they were within the group. So I felt a little more comfortable eavesdropping, but it was a guy talking about having lost his mom to a girl who I think had lost her mom. And he was just like, you know, after that, you start to realize that we're all just moving from like periods of grief, like from one uh-huh. period of grief to the next. He's like, so like, you start to feel better and you want to live your life and you can't always feel so devastated, but like that doesn't go away and you know, it's going to happen again. Mm-hmm. And like, you just live in that in between at best. They really are life markers. Yeah. You know, like it's hard not to be like, okay, this is when this happened and then I changed or you feel you know, yeah, I feel very much that way. And I think I'm sort of death obsessed, <laughs> but I feel like it's a, it's healthy to be death obsessed, um, to a degree. I mean, obviously yeah. if you're every, if you're a hypochondriac or you're thinking that you're constantly going to die and you know, you're, that's not healthy, but I think being aware of death and giving some uh, attention to it on a daily basis is actually wise. Yeah. And I think there's too much turning away from death and there's too much, um, denial of death in our culture. And that's unhealthy mm-hmm. because then when it comes, it, you know, it, it fucks with people's heads. And, um, you know, the, the finite nature of living uh, should be used as a guide to how to uh, properly conduct yourself in life. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I think if we d- don't think about these things, uh, you know, or, or let me put it to you in a different way. Like, if you go into each day thinking, well, today could be my last. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that's sort of a corny uh Way, you know, it's, it can be reduced to the corny, uh-huh. but it's for real. <laughs> totally, yeah. And, and we forget to do that. But, I mean, mm-hmm. if you do actually have that thought every morning and you really give some uh, attention to the fact that you're mortal, it's a good, it's a good way to uh, maybe have a better day. Yeah. Well, yeah, that awareness of it. It's like you, the thing – I think the difference is between awareness and fear, you know. It's like we, if we live in fear of death – then like you, that can get really rough because uh-huh. you can't stop. Like, you have, you're not going to be able to stop it. <laughs> like, yeah, nothing, yeah, yeah. You can avoid this, but like this is going to kill you. Um, but like having just that, that knowledge, like 
like this is going to happen this is going to be a part of life um can be a really like beneficial thing but also it can be manipulated like i know so many people who are like i'll just do whatever the fuck because we're all going to die anyway uh-huh. and it's like well then that's that's just an excuse for you to like treat life however you want and like just do whatever you feel like doing and to be somewhat selfish because you're like, ah, it's all going to be over. Anyway. I don't like that attitude. I don't like that attitude either. Yeah. Um, but I like it as like, I like the attitude of being aware of it as a part of life and like how to live a life that, inc- that includes the fact that we were nothing and we will be nothing, you know? Right. Um, so what I, do you think? Are you, are you a religious man? No, no. Yeah. You're atheist. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but like not, it doesn't sound like you're like super into like identifying that way. Well, so my thing is that we just don't, you don't know. Like, and it's like, I'm not, I was never raised religious. And so I don't think that any, in like, Texas. Sort of, yeah. Yeah. That's an, that's weirdly. a little bit anomalous, right? It's true. I mean, I was raised around a lot of religion, but neither of my parents have any beliefs. I mean, guess my mom's like vaguely Buddhist. Uh, my mom is a Montessori school teacher or she ran a Montessori school up until last year. I know right. she's like working at it in a Montessori school. Okay. Uh, my dad was a psychologist and then he retired two years ago. Okay. So now he just like reads. That's a good combo for you. Are they still together? Yeah. No, no. My dad lives in Prague and my mom lives in Texas. What's your dad doing in Prague? Just changing his life. No <laughs> yeah. He was like, I'm done with Texas. I'm just going to start over. In Prague. In Prague. Why did he pick Prague? A uh, lady. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say, he's, he's not a Czech. No, no, nowhere near it. Like, okay. he just met a woman, and she was from the Czech Republic, and so he moved out there, and they got married. No shit. Yeah. This is all it. fairly recent, too, in the last six years. Yeah, how do you feel about it? Good and bad. I mean, like, I'm really happy that my parents found a way out of, like, their sort of rut. I mean, they didn't have, like, a destructive marriage. They were just kind of, like we're married and we raise these kids and like our lives are really, really different. And like, do we want to keep doing this? And I think they were kind of like, do we want to keep doing this for a little too long? Yeah. Um, and then they finally were like, Nope. All right, we're done. My dad was like, I'm going to just fucking go here. He's like, he's like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die someday. I got to go live my life and like (laughs) do what I want to do and be happy. Yeah. And I don't think he did it like necessarily in the best way. Like, but I, I understand where he's coming from of just being like, I got to do like uproot completely because I've been stuck in this for so yeah, long. Yeah. You needed a change. Yeah. Well, you needed you all know, the changes. Breaking up. Uh, it's never, never, it's never simple. Yeah. In any, for anyone. Yeah. I've, I was always horrible at breaking up. Yeah. I, to the point where I almost didn't want to date. Cause I'm like, oh, if it doesn't work, we're going to have to, <laughs> <laughs> I really didn't like that. Yeah, it was like to, yeah, it was always like terrified of getting a girl pregnant who I knew I wasn't going to marry. Oh yeah, because I would always know right away, and like I tell this to women, and like they're sometimes really surprised. Really? They're like, you really thought about that? I was like, oh my god! Like that was always when I was with girls. I was like, ah, oh, what if she gets pregnant? Like this is I'm not marrying her. I have the ex- I have the exact same thing growing up. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, this is you know I can't because de- I couldn't deal like having to make that decision. It would have just been like really tough on me. And then also, um, you know, it was it was the I don't know if I'm going to marry her. And then what was the other thing we were just talking about? My brain is slipping. Um, what, your parents? Breaking up. Oh, yeah. And then the yeah. breaking up. Like, yeah, not, yeah. Then being like, oh, and then you're going to have to like have this messy breakup. I really like this person as a friend. I was just thinking way too far ahead of myself. <laughs> <laughs> were you like a long-term relationship kind of guy? or were you... I was like a no-term relationship kind uh, of guy. Like uh, I would just get – yeah. I mean it was like – I had a girlfriend in college, one girlfriend, and then – one girlfriend after college and then my wife. Yeah. Okay. And then like, you know, some like flings or whatever. Mm-hmm. But just, I, I guess I, I always sort of knew, especially once I got into my 20s, I was like, I'm going to know when it's right. And I trusted that instinct. And, and so far I was right. 
Sweet. Like when I met my wife, I was like, okay, that's it. Yeah. Same with Andy. And I was, yeah. I was greatly relieved. Mm-hmm. I'm not one of those guys who's like, God, I miss dating. Dating was so fun. Like dating, dating was, was not fun. Dating was not fun. <laughs> I was a bad dater. Yeah. I didn't like going out and having to try, you know, I was like so relieved and happy to uh, have met somebody that I really liked and like to be done with that. Yeah. How long have you been married? Uh, it will be eight years this summer. Nice. But, and this is going to sound corny. Like I just realized that tomorrow is 10 years to the day of my wife and I's first kiss. Wow. So How do you know that? Because it was my grandmother's birthday and uh, my friend. I'm really good with birthdays. Yeah. I just remember. And also nine is my when lucky was it, number. What's my birthday? You asked me at the beginning of the podcast. December 10th. What year? 1984. Boom. Yeah. You are really good with birthdays. <laughs> I almost <See>? forgot. <laughs> like once I, I mean, I, I have to like lock it a little bit, but like once I have a person's birthday locked, yeah. I will remember it. And I used to be that way with phone numbers and addresses. Like I can still remember all the phone numbers of my friends from when I was a kid in the eighties. Yeah, me too. I can remember every address I've ever lived at. You know, all that kind of stuff sticks to me. But uh, also birthdays. Like I feel like birthdays are a way of me being able to keep track of the important people in my life. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because it's like you lose track of people, but it's like, oh, that's their birthday. I'm gonna at least like say happy birthday to them on their birthday. Mm-hmm. And I've gotten worse at you know worse at it as I've gotten older. But I still remember. Mm-hmm. So for all the people, <laughs> all the people out there who didn't get birthday wishes from me, I remembered. I just was too lazy to email you. And um, by the way, happy birthday, mom! Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right. Apologies. So uh, okay. So, but a psychologist and a mo- you know Montessori uh, teacher. Yeah, yeah. That seems like a coupling that could produce a writer. It's true. Yeah. Or like a total sociopath, or a lawyer, which is what my sister did. Okay, so you have uh, one sibling. One sibling, one older sibling. Okay. Yeah, and. Uh, and then do you get to go to Prague to see your dad? Have like, you gone to do that trip? I did it once, and we stayed there for about a month. It's actually when Andy and I got engaged. Oh. Um, Charles, was was it Charles River? What is it called? Oh, shit. The Bina, the river. That's, um, yeah, there's a, maybe it's the Charles. Yeah. But although, why would it be the Charles? I don't know. If it's in Prague. It's probably the Charles. Okay. That sounds right. Yeah, it's yeah. a big river. Yeah, we, yeah. we went on some paddle boats on it. Yeah. Um, beautiful town. Beautiful town. Beautiful city. And a lot also, of tourists. Also, also, I mean, I don't know how much it's changed. It's been a long time since I've been there. But yeah. there was a distinctly... Um, like Soviet feel. Yeah. There's some post Soviet like echoes to the like architecture and the graffiti and the train stations. And like, I remember mm-hmm. being on like the Eurorail thing when I was at like after college and, uh, you know, in my early twenties and like you're in Western Europe and it's one thing. And then you get off the train in Prague and you're like, Oh, this is a different vibe. Did they still have the giant statue of like Lenin or Stalin? There was some, like some Soviet figure who was like a giant, they had a giant statue of it. For a very long time, and then they tore it down and replaced it with a giant metronome, like overlooking the city. I don't remember. I mean, I don't know. Oh. I could have been. I mean, you know, my memories are spotty. It's. I mean, my memory of this is also really spotty. Like, they could have been torn down in like the 1700s. I don't know. I just know at some point they tore it down and put up this giant metronome, and the yeah. metronome's like an incredible thing. To yeah, see. yeah. It was I mean, yeah. to be. I almost got mugged there. Really? Yeah. Some guy wanted to sell me a joint and like was like, come down this like alley, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? Right away, it was sketchy. Yeah. And I just stopped following him. Yeah. You know, it's like I walked a little bit and then I was like, okay, this is he's he's clearly gonna pull a knife on me or something. Yeah. I think. I've never been mugged. Ever. Never. Neither. Neither. I mean, knock on wood. Yeah. I'm very superstitious, but yeah, yeah. I've never. Uh, I mean, that was the closest I've ever come, and uh, I think fortunately, like. My better instincts prevailed, mm-hmm. or maybe he was just like a, a stoner who was going to sell me a joint. <laughs> could be. He had a really he's good like, joint. You missed like, like, an amazing fight. <laughs> it's like wow, that guy sketched out. But you know, it just seemed like why do we need to walk down this alley? You right. Know? It's just you know, so I didn't do it. But 
Um, but you had a good time in Prague. Oh yeah, it was from, I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was weird. it was complicated. It was the first time I saw my dad since he left, and like and this Czech know, woman or the and Czech this Czech woman, woman had yeah. met her. They yeah. got engaged like a week after I proposed to Andy. Were you there? Um, oh, sorry. Wait. Yeah, yeah, it must have been there. So it was like dueling engagements. Yeah. I, why don't I remember it that way though? It was very quickly after. Uh huh. No, no, I got, I miss, this is not, I'm misremembering. Okay. What happened was I told my dad I was going to engage, get engaged. And then he proposed to his girlfriend. Whoa. And then we went to Prague and then I was like, well, I'm, I'm still going to propose to Andy. So I proposed <laughs> to Andy, but so they were engaged when we got there. That's okay. what it was. Okay. All right. But very recently I got engaged. Wow. Yeah. Did you guys have like it's a dual, like you can you know, go out to dinner and like, I guess, celebrate together. No, I mean, they're like, so they're very restrained people. Like oh. my dad and uh, Petra, his, his wife, um, will j- drink juice mixed with water because juice is too intense. You know, like, <laughs> so, like the oh celebration was more like something that Andy and I did, like privately. Did your dad have like a, a beard and like a, is he like a shrink, full shrink? No, no, no beard. Um, I pay, glasses I pictu- though. Okay, yeah. I was right picturing here. like a Freudian look or like you know. He so he was a psychologist at a, like a youth correctional facility in Gainesville, Texas, for most of his career. He also was at a state school in Denton. Um, so he had like you know sh- he was shaved and like buttoned up shirt and khakis and kind of thing, not like a tweed blazer. Is he bohemian now? No, no, no. He's not. I had a friend who uh, her dad was like the super, you know, buttoned up kind of guy, and then her parents split up, and then like he became like an artist. Yeah, he was like painting and shit like that. My dad's starting to read me his poetry. There you go. Which is <laughs> interesting. <out>. <laughs> there was this great moment where he was reading a poem, and I, he, hadn't, he hadn't told me that it was his poem. He was just like, I'm going to read you this poem. He started reading it. I was like, this is fucking terrible. And then he was – and he has some good lines, and he has like, you know, he's a smart man. But like at that moment, I was just like, who is this? Like, yeah, it doesn't right. sound like a, like a published poem that my I would dad be hor- would select. I would be horrified if my dad started reading me poetry. Yeah. I would be tough. I mean, especially if there's no precedent for it. Well, yeah, there's no precedent. There's no con- like, there's no context because he doesn't even <laughs> tell me it's his poem. So it's just like these random lines. I'm like, why are you presenting this to me? And then there was an, in the middle of the poem, there was a line that's like, because you had bad parents. And when he said it, I was like, oh, you wrote this. <laughs> like, <laughs> I now know both that idea and the way you delivered that line that this is a personal project. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you know, bless him. Yeah. Like, and if they want to like, I mean, like, there's not, you know, who are we to say they can't make art or. Oh, he totally should. Yeah. yeah. I'm so happy for him. Sure. Yeah. So, um, you wrote a Western, wrote a Western. How did that come about? Um, I don't really know. I mean, I guess Texas. So. Yeah. Texas was, was a thing. Did and the you... last book was kind of set in Texas and like, it's, but it's not a Western. I mean, the, the thing, like, this is a thing that I've been thinking about, like retroactively is that like the, most that the, the my experience in Texas mostly influenced the like ludicrous elements of the book, uh-huh. not so much like the taking the Western really seriously, but like how jokey it is because the the Texas that I knew is like just hilariously involved in the West. Like no, in no way is it practical. Like it's a small, like Denton is a small town, very developed. There are a few people who have like cattle and horses and that kind of thing, but really not that many. But a lot more people dress like they have cattle and they don't have cattle and they like. You know, they work at like um, all hat, no cattle, all hat, no cattle, all hat and boot. <laughs> right. You know, and like there's like babies walking around in like full cowboy outfits. And it's just like they're like, that's not a he's not. a cowboy. I feel like Texas as a state 
has more like it, it's more invested in its own identity as like culturally than just about any other state. It's really true. It's I mean, really, maybe Vermont and like Vermont and Texas. Is yeah. that what? Yeah, like they're real big and like when I, people from Texas are like, "I'm a Texan," right? And I was like, "I'm from Indiana," and I was like, "I'm a Hoosier." Like, <laughs> you know, like it was never like that. And Californians, I don't know. I feel like Northern Californians are like prouder of mm-hmm. being from Northern California. Like there's like the San Francisco Los Angeles dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you know, San Francisco is pretty beautiful. I mean, there's something to be thumping your chest about. Yeah, <laughs> you get to live up there. But it's really nice. Um, I don't know. Texan Texas is uh, it, it really loves to be Texas. It's true. I mean, I think it's a mix. Like I, you know, I'm I'm Texan, but I've never been like Texan. I've yeah. never really identified as. I don't. Texan. I wouldn't peg you. I feel like you're from Vermont. Yeah, yeah, and I, I lived for a year in Vermont. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so you did your time. But uh, but yeah, and like no accent, no like real ties to most. To guns, you know, uh, and to basically any of the politics of Texas. What's that all about? Guns. No idea. Fear um, and like self, like pride, you know. Is that what it is? It's a penis thing? Or like, is I mean, there is a phallic element to it. There's some a penis thing. There's a power thing. I mean, I always wonder about like the penis thing because I feel like penis has been like wrongly connected to like power. And so now whenever we're like someone's attracted to a powerful element, we're like, ah, it's a, it's a penis thing, you right. know? But it's like the... Here I am with my microphone, by the way. Right. I know. Like, <laughs> thanks for putting this in my face. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know if... Because there's a lot of women who carry guns in Texas, too. And then, yeah. You know, I mean, some I get, of them might want a penis. But I, I can sort of get it at the level, at the level of, uh, like, arm yourself because the government... I mean, like, I'm, I'm anti the surveillance state. I'm, I have concerns about abuse of power. Yeah. And maybe not exactly right now. Well, I mean, yeah, but... There's some elements, some elements of it right now that really bother me and yeah. scare me. What bothers me more is what could happen down the road if mm-hmm. things continue to escalate in this direction For and sure. who we have in office, who, if they're, they're really dark, like how they're going to use the things how, that we've yeah. set up. So yeah. like, there's a part of it that's like, okay, like an armed populace, like even if like the government has like drones and missiles and planes and tanks and all these like superior weapons, mm-hmm. like at least an armed populace gives them pause. Yeah. Some pause. Like there's a part of me that can understand that logic, but you know, not for long. Like I just see with the, they're killing machines. Why do we need these things? Yeah. Well, it's like by having one, you're present, you're putting yourself in a position where there is a potential like problem that could come up where in your mind, the solution will be shooting someone. And it's yeah. like, I would like to just not shoot anybody. Yeah. You know, you so ever shot I, a gun. I have shot guns. Yeah. How'd you feel when you did it? It felt great, but not be- because it was a joke, you know, or like not, maybe not a joke, but like, it wasn't like, I wasn't taking someone's life and I wasn't doing, I wasn't even taking like an animal's but life. But it wasn't you know? even like a little bit scary to have it in your hands. Loaded. It was, no, it no. was completely thrilling. And that's a terrifying <laughs> thing to, to admit. All right. Um, but this was like at my, I'm thinking specifically at my bachelor party. I was on acid. I mean, it was just uh, you know, <laughs> it was like, a totally different it was story. Off my balls. Um, <laughs> All the cocaine we did just made the gun shooting that much better. The the thing that was that was kind of alarming was that we walked to, up to this gun range in Texas and like we just asked for shotguns and or they were like, "What kind of guns do you want?" We were like, "Oh, shotguns." And they were like, "Okay, great." And they gave us you know, you want four, you want five, how many do you want? And they were like, "Bullets are here." Um, have fun. Like have, they were like, have any of you ever shot one before? And we were like, no. And they're like, okay, well, there's there'll be people out there. Like, if you need any help, just like flag someone. Yeah. And then we went out with shotguns. No, I did no it in driver's high license. No, no like, I did it in high school. My buddy uh, Patrick, his grandfather gave him like an old World War II bolt action rifle. Yeah. These giant bullets. And uh, Indiana is very hillbilly. Mm-hmm. Like even though geographically it's north, like it's got some southern to it. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, the culturally, you know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and there was a place called Don's Guns, which is probably <laughs> still there. And like, you know, you know how car dealers have their like local commercials and the shitty quality, like whatever you live. Like he had like his own like very famous line of commercials where he would like be like, "Hi, I'm Don," and he was like just like a redneck with like a beard and like a mullet, and he'd be like. <laughs> Uh, what was his tagline? It was like, I don't want to make money. I just love to sell guns. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just John, like, what a man. Yeah. What a hero. We walked in there at 15, 16 years old with a, with a bolt action rifle. And they're like, sure, go, go ahead. We paid them. They gave us some bullets and we just Jeez. went in there and shot. And, uh, wow. yeah, I just, it was too much for me. I was like, I mean, I shot it a few times, but it was like the power of it and the noise and just like, uh, wasn't for me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I left the gun range not feeling like I got to get a gun and do this more. I was like, that was cool for that, you know. Yeah. It's like riding a roller coaster or something. It's like you just don't want. I didn't want it to be a part of my daily life. I'm just glad that I did it that time. Right. You know. Yeah, and I think like from a writerly perspective, you know, and I think about like my writerly heroes. Yeah. Like a lot of them were like into guns, yeah. or at least I think of like Hunter Thompson. Right. He had a gun that fetish. worked out well for him. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Hemingway. Yeah. Um. You know, and like, there's a part of me that's like, oh yeah, it's a free country. You can do mm-hmm. whatever you want. And like, he's just like shooting typewriters in the snow or whatever right. into that picture. But mm-hmm. uh, it's a bad idea. It, I don't know. There's there's some there's a key like component of wisdom that seems to be lacking from yeah. that arrangement. They're they're are they either just passed this or they're going to soon pass. Um, I don't even know what you'd call it, like a bill or a law that allows concealed carry on UT campus in Texas. So this is like 18 year olds that can just carry guns into their lectures. That seems fucked up. It's so fucked up. Cause like you don't have the life wisdom. Like you, how could you give someone like as was a child, like just the, not only the sort of like opportunity to carry a gun, but like to hide it. And like the sort of support of like, yeah, you might need this, like yeah. be on the lookout. Like you should have a gun. And the logic yeah. is that like the, it'll be like, if there's concealed carry, then that would be a deterrent to school shooters school because they would think like, well, someone else is going to have one. Yeah. I mean, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. We'll yeah. see how it goes. <laughs> Not sending my daughter to UT. That's um, the thing. Like to, to, to wrap it back around, I feel like the sort of fundamental difference between what we were talking about, like, our closeness to death and like, versus like how you talk about a child is like, we weren't concerned with protecting ourselves. We were concerned with like, you know, maybe protecting ourselves in certain ways, but like just going out and living and experiencing life. Yeah. But I feel like with a kid, you're suddenly like, Oh, I don't want you to do exactly what I did because I have to, I want to protect you. Like I care about what yeah, happens to no, you. No, that's you know? the thing with the drugs. I mean, like yeah. you can fuck yourself up. Yeah. I've seen it. You can kill yourself. Yeah. I've seen it happen. Yeah. Um, and it's dangerous, you know, mm-hmm. and it's not to be, they're not toys, you know, yeah. but then at the same time, like the thing is you have to be able to hold two thoughts in your head at one time in order right. to be an honest person. And like at the same time, you can have a lot of fun Yeah, getting baked with your friends and eating cereal and watching TV. You can have, and you can also have some like funny, like epiphanies and like yeah. you can, like, I think there's something to changing your perspective and being like, oh, well shit, you know, I don't know nearly as much as I thought I did. Right. Like that, that alone, that little small thing mm-hmm. is very valuable. It this, brings a little humility. Like there's nothing I can think of outside, like t- taking mushrooms. Like the first time I took mushrooms, just that shift in perception, like just that suddenly looking at life in a really, really different way. Yes. And I did not feel like false at the time. You know, right. I can look back at it and be like, oh, maybe it's artificial. It was drug induced, whatever. Like, all that, that whole argument aside, um, at the time it meant it was real. And like, it's therefore for me, it's been built in as like a real, a real thing. Well, that's the thing yeah. about that. And again, uh, another callback, like, uh, boyhood. 
Yeah. Like that scene at the end where he takes mushrooms and, mm -hmm. you know, he's like, it's always now. Like, I related to that life experience so, like, it, it, it touched me. Like, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like, it wasn't like some sort of hedonistic recollection where it was like, oh, remember the... Like, it's, it's a sweet time. It was a, it was a uh, deeply important experience for me hmm. even though it was like enmeshed with hedonism yeah. <laughs> or just like being completely silly and not, you know, out of my tree or whatever not yeah. knowing quite what i was doing mm -hmm. like like you were saying like it it was a shift and it was an important shift because um maybe like maybe it was a confirmation of instincts mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying because i think if you're a, uh, like i grew up with religion uh, sort of being forced upon me and not like too aggressively but like my parents wanted me to be church going and mm -hmm. like uh, i never took to it and felt like there was something more, you yeah. know, and like that just didn't, I wanted to find my own truth or whatever. Mm -hmm. And maybe it was kind of a confirmation, not necessarily that like, not necessarily in a clarifying way, mm -hmm. like in a deeply clarifying, like, oh, this is how it is perfectly laid out A to Z, but just right. more of a confirmation of like, yeah, there's more than meets the eye. And, mm -hmm. uh, it's a lot weirder than you think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I was like, okay, so I'm not fucking crazy. Right. You know? And like, I'm on at least what feels like the right path to me. And like, I don't know, there was a comfort to it almost. And also that was maybe part of the reason why I laughed so hard the first time I did it. Mm -hmm. Cause I was like, Holy shit. You know? <laughs> <laughs> this is so weird. And, uh, and you know, it was with good friends and we had a good time. So, you know, I think that's fairly common for people who had that experience. And then there's also people who had like the terrifying, like rocking in a corner. Yeah. You know, which yeah, I always wonder how it works out for them because I'm like, well, I guess you know, <laughs> technically that's still a shift in perception. And like, did you was it well, as rewarding? Well, that's for like you? what Terrence McKenna yeah. always says. Like, he's like, you know, if you didn't, you know, you got to take too much because you can't. That's the thing about that's the thing about it too is you can't overdose on hallucinogens. Like the, the toxicity level, you mm -hmm. can't like OD and die. Mm -hmm. uh, same with pot, mm -hmm. you know. But like uh, other drugs, that's the case where it's really dangerous in like a mortality way. But like. Mm -hmm. You know, he was all, he was always advocating taking five dried grams, which is a huge amount. Oof. It's like almost it's more than an eighth. It's like almost twice an eighth. Jesus, like, what is that? A quarter? <laughs> like I can't do that. <laughs> it's a shitload. Yeah, and uh, that's terrifying to me. I don't have the courage for that. Yeah, but I know people. I think I know a couple people who did that, and uh, apparently, like the insights are spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> I'll I'll take their word for it. <laughs> I, I do have the genuine fear of getting lost, you know, uh -huh, and like yeah. maybe like a lot of people are like, you got to get lost. And like, but I do have that. Like, I feel like my hold on reality is so thin already, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. that's um, how my wife always, that's my wife won't do it. Cause I think she's just like, no, I'll, I'll not come back. Yeah. Some people feel like that. Yeah. And I'm a fool who's like, I'll come back. I had this, um, so I have this friend who I, I've been like best friends with since um, second grade. And he, when we both started thinking about like taking drugs, his whole thing was, I'm not going to take any drugs. I'm not going to drink because, and this is like when we're like 14, you know, we're yeah. just kids. Um, pussy. <laughs> it's total pussy. <laughs> but he was like, I was like, why not? And he's like, well, I don't want to lose control. I'm yeah. like, I feel like I'm going to, my life will, like my life will become shit. I'll like have kids and like, uh, you know, not be able to get a good job and like, you know, whatever. Just like, I'll lose control of everything and like all the whole progress of my life. And I was like, yeah, whatever. Like, that's fine. Let's just fucking do it. And we both did it. And then he like had a kid at like 21, <laughs> oh, 23, 23 and like stayed in the town where we grew up. And he's like a brilliant man, like a brilliant writer, like kind heart, just like excellent. But it was, it was just funny to go back to Denton and be like, remember how like, we were just like drunk and like smoking or something. And he, he's like, remember how you said that like, you didn't want to like smoke and drink because you were scared that you were going to lose control of your life. And he's like, yeah. And look what fucking happened. The prophecy. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. 
but he's like you know he's also like now he's getting his MFA and he's doing well like you know he's got, he's got seven he's got seven him. kids and an MFA <laughs> all great kids <laughs> his kids are really smart <laughs> <laughs> does, does tons of drugs it's a great arrangement uh, well this has been fun man yeah. I, I appreciate you coming over congratulations on the book thanks. and uh, you know best of luck with whatever comes next thanks man thanks for having me out Okay, guys, that's Colin Wynette. Go get his novel. It's called Haint's Stay, available now from $2 Radio. Find him online at colinwynette.net and uh, follow him on Twitter. His handle over there is at my L foot, my R foot. Colin Wynette. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Uh, don't forget to get the app and sign up for premium. Support this program. Uh, the app is free. The Other People app. This podcast has its own official app. Get it where you know wherever you uh, like to get your apps. Get that app on your device. The uh, most recent 50 episodes will then be waiting for you free of charge. And then if you want to get at uh, the other episodes uh, and, and ha- you know have access to the full archive of uh, programs, you, you can just sign up for pro- premium access right there within the app. It's very cheap. I encourage you to do that. So that I can buy food for my uh, impending baby. My baby's going to starve if you don't sign up for premium. What the fuck is wrong with you? I jest, of course. But only partially. I'm having a boy, if you don't know. We're still torn about the name. I don't know what we're going to name him. I think we kind of know, but like we're going to wait and like actually hold the baby and look at the baby and then make a final decision. It's one of the things about having a baby late in your life is that uh, all the names have been taken. So the names that we like, we have friends who have babies with those names. It's just a pain in the ass. And I think at some point my attitude about it is, well, fuck it. It's like they have copyright. You just got to name your kid what you want to name your kid and let the chips fall. It's nothing personal. Anybody who feels proprietary over a name is ridiculous. I don't care. Name your kid whatever you want to name your kid. I have a friend the other day was like, oh, you know, I love the name Evan for a girl. That's my daughter's name. And I was like, great, use it. And they were like, oh, no, I couldn't. And I was like, why? Go ahead. Knock yourself out. It's not like I own the name. Some people feel like that. It's It's my baby's name. It's my name. It's your name? It's ridiculous. Please remember that Graham Greene never learned to drive a car and that Saul Bellow habitually wore a fedora. That's it for now, I think. It's time for me to... uh, I actually have to interview somebody right after this because that's how hard I work. I'm the hardest working podcaster. Is this show business? I was going to say in show business. I'm the hardest working podcaster in no business. (laughs) Uh, that's it for now. Thanks for, uh, thanks to Colin Wynette. Thanks to $2 radio. Go get Haints stay, pick up a copy, $2 radio. They don't publish a bad book. Go get it. Sign up for premium support this show, especially if you're somebody who's been listening for a long time for free, throw a few nickels in the hat. Come on. And, uh, I'll be back soon. Unless my wife gives birth, in which case there, you know, I might have to take a couple of weeks off. I don't know how it's all going to shake out or I'll be sitting here with a crying baby on the microphone. Should I do that? Do you want me to do that? Just have a wailing baby on the program. 
going to be easy to have a second kid. It's going to be easy to not sleep. It's going to be easy to get everything I need to get done, done. It's going to be simple. It's all going to work out. (laughs) 